Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for March 11th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. Returning with the latest addition to his Hidden History series is veteran author, journalist, Tom Hartman. The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy, was just published by Barrett Kohler, He explores how the government and corporate America misuse our personal data and shows how we can reclaim our privacy. Tom Hartman documents exactly how the government and corporations are tracking our every online move and using our data to buy elections, employ social control, and monetize our lives. Tom Hartman traces the history of surveillance and social control, looking back to how Big Brother invented whiteness to keep order and how surveillance began to be employed as a way to modify behavior. As he writes, the goal of those who violate privacy and use surveillance is almost always social control and behavior modification. By delving into the constitutional right to privacy, Tom Hartman reminds us of our civil right and shows us how we can restore it. And particularly now, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, cyber warfare is a factor, whether control of information or disruption of infrastructure. We spoke with Tom Hartman on March 9th, 2020, via Skype. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Tom Hartman. Hey, Joy, it's great being with you again. Tom, your latest book in the Hidden History series is The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. Like the others in your Hidden History series, it focuses on threats to democracy. In this case, ways our privacy and autonomy have been undermined historically and especially in this new era of Internet access to our activities, with ramifications that most of us cannot begin to imagine. But before we get into the present, please briefly share with us your dive into the history leading up to the current rapidly evolving realities. I start the book by first distinguishing that there are basically two big brothers I'm talking about here. One is government, and the other is corporate. And the corporate one is far more recent. And I start with the history of government big brother. There were two times when we had literally the George Orwell type of thought police running parts of the United States. One was in the northeastern part of the United States, even before it was the United States in the 1600s and throughout the 1700s, principally Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire. I used John Greenleaf Whittier's uh, poem, which is an actual story about three young women, three Quakers, who uh, were ordered to be stripped naked and dragged through the snow from city to city in the dead of winter, uh, whipped bloody in each city because they did not attend his church, basically. They got sideways with this minister. And so you had absolute thought control going on there. And then in the South, the American South, by the middle 1830s or at the very latest by 1840, the South had ceased to be a democracy at all. The elections were shams. The ballot boxes were routinely stuffed. Poor whites had had virtually no power and no say in politics. There were about a thousand oligarchic families who owned massive plantations in the various states who pretty much ruled the South. 
It was an oligarchy. And so when the Civil War happened, it wasn't a war between two parts of the United States that were both democracies. It was war between a part of the United States that had become an oligarchic strongman dictatorship, essentially, versus a democratic republic in the north. And fortunately, the democracy won. So we actually had major big brothers in the United States. And of course, if you were black in the south throughout the 400 year history, it was big brother in the south. So that's where I start. And then we get into the more modern incarnations of it, both with government and with corporations. I very much appreciated the Latin quote with which you begin the book, quis custodiate ipsos custodes, who watches the watchers? Exactly. Juvenile's quote. Yeah. And that's the question. I mean, that's always the question. And in a democratic republic, the answer to that question should be very easy. It's the people. But increasingly, that's not the case. Well, you're certainly watching out and you're opening our listeners' eyes as you have often opened mine, Tom. You do talk about the FBI and the hold that J. Edgar Hoover had on the whole country from the most powerful politicians down to the lowliest would-be revolutionaries. Just very briefly talk about that, because you and I are of an age, we remember J. Edgar Hoover, but many of our listeners don't. Hoover was a gay man at the pinnacle of American power, the director of the FBI from, I forget the year he started, but I think it was in the 1930s, right up until he died in the, as I recall, the 1970s. And he was being blackmailed on the one hand, by Santo Traficante, a a Florida mobster who was implicated in the JFK killing. He and his lover, Clyde Tolson, used to go down to Traficante's place in Hialeah, and and Traficante plied them with liquor and money and let them gamble at the racetrack there that Traficante owned and, uh, and brought them young boys and things. It was pretty sordid. And Tony Summers and others have written books about that since then, since Hoover died. But before he died, there wasn't a politician in America outside of Bobby Kennedy who was seriously willing to take him on because he had dirt on everybody. He even sent a tape of Martin Luther King having an extramarital affair, an audio tape that they recorded in the bedroom to King and said, commit suicide or what this goes to your wife next. That's the kind of man he was. He was a horrible human being. But because he knew the secrets of all these people, he was able to hold on to that power all that time. And he also ran an FBI that would not tolerate gay agents. And yet here he was, a gay man himself. And he successfully kept that secret until the day he died, too. In fact, for our younger listeners, being gay was considered a security risk. If you were gay, you wouldn't get security clearance because it was thought that an enemy could use that to get you to break security secrets. and that. Yeah, blackmail you. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. Well, and and in addition, there were a number of states where if you were gay, you'd go to prison. I mean, just for just for being gay. That's right. Or, Or for behaving. You know, I mean, you'd have to, you know, for having sex with somebody of the same gender, of the same sex. Well, if we're going to pay attention to that, I mean, it's in the, I forget exactly when, but 1990s, early 2000s, that the last of the sodomy laws were overturned in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's pretty recently. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm forgetting the case now, but yes, you're absolutely right. It was Texas versus somebody. And that brings up the issue of privacy. And you point out, Tom Hartman, in your book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, The word privacy is not an enumerated right. It's not found anywhere in the Constitution. 
very briefly talk about how come that's such a contemporary concept and term. The word has undergone a change in meaning since the 1770s and the 1780s when the Constitution was written. Back in the day, uh, this was before toilets had mostly moved indoors and we had the flush toilet, which Thomas Crapper popularized in the 1860s. And before people had put the bathing tub, typically the bathing tub was in the kitchen because that's where you heated the water before those moved into the room and, and we got what we refer to today as bathrooms. You had an outhouse. And if you had to get up and leave a room full of people and say, you know, I need to go outside and use the outhouse, you didn't say that. You said, excuse me, I need a moment of privacy. Privacy was the word that was kind of the code word in that era for toilet functions. And that's why you won't find the word anywhere. I mean, I searched the entire digitized collection of the writings of Jefferson, Adams, Hamilton, half a dozen of them that I've got. And the only reference to the word privacy I could find was in Federalist 69, where Hamilton was complaining about the fact that three men in secret selected the governor of New York. And, and he said in private or with privacy, which meant something kind of sordid that's done behind closed doors. So it was not a word that would have occurred to any of the framers of the Constitution to include in that document. And what's so amazing is that right up until 1961, there was no recognition of a right to privacy by the Supreme Court. In fact, in 61, that was the year that birth control pills were legalized. There were laws on the books in many states, and most famously Connecticut, because that's the one that got litigated before the court twice that said that even married couples could not have birth control. These were laws that were mostly put in place by Catholic legislators. And so it was against the law for even a married couple to have condoms, much less birth control pills. And when this was litigated in 61 before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, no, it's fine. You know, Connecticut can have that law. It's no problem. And then four years later in 1965, in the case of Griswold versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court revisited that law and said, no, we have discovered that the Fourth Amendment actually meant privacy. You have a right to privacy. That includes your right to have your own birth control devices in your own home for married couples. Now, it wasn't until 1972 that they legalized birth control for unmarried people and thus kicking off the sexual revolution and the, and the, and the women's movement in a big way. It's a strange history of that word, privacy. I was struck in the parts of the book where you're talking about this progression, about the value of losing votes at the Supreme Court, the value of a well-written, well-thought-out dissent. Because in the 1928 case of Olmsted v. U.S., it was Louis Brandeis's dissent where he talks about the right to be left alone. And it right. wasn't for 40-plus years that that got taken up again, but he planted the seed of that. Yep, you're absolutely right. Brandeis was the guy who who started it, even though he lost the case or the case. You know, he was on the he was on the losing end of the case, but his dissent was absolutely brilliant and was quoted in '65, as I recall. But it certainly was the thing that kind of shook up America in that regard. Some of the fiery dissents that we're hearing in the 6-3 rulings recently on the Supreme Court by particularly Justice Sotomayor, they're useful, if not immediately effective. 
Yes, I agree. Uh, I agree. And, and particularly when she talked about, you know, who's going to save the Supreme Court and will we recover from the stench of this? You know, it's she's she's has been so blunt. God bless her. Yeah. Blunt and clear. Yeah. yeah. Well, we should talk about wiretaps and warrants and reasonable expectations of privacy. For example, Katz v. U.S. in 1967, and then the legislation that came after those. It's the case that decided that you you have to have a warrant to get a wiretap. Right. I mean, who knows how well that's been honored, but at least the decision was there. And then that led to the Privacy Act of 1974 and then the also the Fair Credit Reporting Act of 1970. You know, we take some of this stuff for granted, but these were hard-won, hard-fought things. Yes, absolutely. And and many of these privacy protections have now become almost anachronistic in the digital age, particularly since uh, Trump and Ajit Pai rolled back net neutrality in the United States. We are now the only developed country in the world where the company that brings the Internet into your home also has the right to record absolutely everything you do online, every keystroke, every every article you read, every page you visit, every email you send or receive and use that information any way they want, which is pretty mind-boggling when you think about it, Joy. Yes, and this is where so much of your book, Tom, really opened my eyes. I've done my best to not connect with most of these things. I'm not connected with the Internet of Things. I heard a statement by Zuckerberg early on in Facebook when he was asked by a reporter... Do people understand that you are gaining access to so much of their information? And he just kind of chuckled and says, yeah, they're just, you know, I mean, he didn't, I'm not quoting him, but I got the impression that he thought we were all a bunch of knuckleheads for allowing it. And he famously had a Band-Aid over the the camera on his laptop. (laughs) Well, I've got something over mine, too. Yep. That brings up the horror story that you have exposed in the book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, how the death of privacy and the rise of surveillance threaten us and our democracy. Let's just begin talking about what's actually happening when, let's say, we get a doorbell that's got a camera and and is connected to the Internet of Things or a thermostat or a refrigerator or even those smart speakers. What's going on there? What has happened is that the normal everyday things of our life have become a commodity that can be sliced and diced and brokered and sold for a variety of purposes, not all purposes that we might be pleased about if we knew. And so increasingly what you're finding is that, you know how back there was printers, for example, you you can buy printers fairly cheaply because they want you to keep buying the ink. They make all their money on the ink. Some restaurants, they make their money on on soft drinks and, and bars make their money on the alcohol. Well, increasingly, you're finding things like thermostats and doorbells that are relatively cheap. The catch is that you've got to connect it to the server of the company that basically administers it. So, you know, if you want to set your thermostat to go on at a particular time or monitor the temperature of your home or have any of those smart functions, it's got to be connected to a giant computer someplace else. Not because it's necessary. You could easily build that kind of computing function into a thermostat and it would cost just pennies more. But because that company wants to know, 
when you're home, when you're not home, when you go to sleep, when you get up, if you have any medical conditions that might cause you to jack the temperature up or down, is somebody going through menopause, is somebody going through cancer treatment, there's all this granular data that they can get about you just from your thermostat. I broke my back when I was 19 years old skydiving, and so I've had back problems and back pain for my whole life. And so recently, Louise and I bought one of these smart beds that you can adjust the hardness of it, and also it, it'll lift up the, the front and the back a little bit if you adjust it. And it turns out that I have to connect it to the company in order to use these smart functions. In other words, I have to give them access to literally my heartbeat rate during the night, how often I wake up, the speed with which I breathe, uh, how many hours I sleep. All that data has to go to the company that owns the bed for me to be able to control just the basic functions of the bed and, and get that feedback back. And of course, the reason why is because that company can sell that data. In fact, it was uh, totally spooky. We called the store that we bought the bed from, and the woman pulled up my name and said, oh, it looks like you're sleeping quite well now. I see you saw you slept seven and a half hours last night. And I'm like, how do you, <laughs> it's like, how do you know that? Well, I, you know, I, I didn't ask the question because I knew the answer, but it's just creepy. But in many ways, it goes beyond creepy. Our, our lives are being monetized. The, the doorbells, for example, now there's one company that's selling a doorbell system that will connect you in with all your neighbors who have the same doorbell and then tie that in with your local police department. So your local police know who's coming to your house and when and how often. And in addition to the big company that's storing all that data on you, what time you go to bed, when you have parties, uh, you know, everything. I mean, it's all right there. And, you know, if they apply facial recognition technology to the camera in the doorbell, and they certainly have the ability to do that, then they really know everything that's going on in your life. Okay, so that brings up data points. And you have, let's see, four pages in really small type of data points that a Federal Trade Commission investigation found from some of the simplest profiles these companies compile from 2014. And it just goes on and on and on. So you give some concrete examples of how data points have been used. And I think of interest to our listeners in particular was the efforts that Brittany Kaiser wrote about the 2016 voter suppression. Would you talk about that, please, Tom Hartman? In the 2016 election, the Trump campaign, and then in the 2018 election, the Ted Cruz campaign as well, they both used Cambridge Analytica. This British company bragged that they had scraped over 200 million American users of Facebook, all their data. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg came out later and said, no, it's only 87 million, but that's still pretty creepy. And they, the data got so granular, they literally know your emotional state. They know who all your friends and relatives are. They know your preferences. They know what kind of car you drive. They know what kind of cigarette you smoke or what kind of food you eat or what you like and what you don't like and, and how you occupy your time. And of course, if you visit any website anywhere on the internet that's got a Facebook link on it or a like thing on it, that information goes back to Facebook that you were on that website. So they just knew a vast amount of information about Americans. And at the height of the of the campaign, the 2016 Trump campaign against Hillary Clinton, they were testing on average 40 or 50,000 different variations on a single ad every day. And there was one day they tested over 150,000. 
And so each one of those little granular variations would be just inserting something that would make that ad meaningful to the person receiving it. The kind of motorcycle they had when they were a kid or the kind of cigarette that they smoke or the kind of person that they like or dislike, depending on what they were trying to provoke. And the principal message, the reason why they called it voter suppression, in fact, was the principal message that they were conveying to largely white Democrats was and independent voters was both parties are the same. They're both corrupt. Why bother even voting? And the message that they were conveying to black voters was this little clip of Hillary Clinton from the 90s talking about super predators saying basically Hillary Clinton is not your friend, only in far more fancy and sophisticated ways of doing that. We only have a few hundred of those ads now. I mean, most of of those hundreds of thousands of ads that the Trump campaign ran, that most of them filled with lies, disinformation, there's not even any record of them. They've just kind of vanished. The only people, the only organization that, that probably still has them as Facebook, and they're not passing them around to anybody. So I would say between the Russian trolls who were amplifying that message on social media, the the message of both parties are the same, don't bother voting, uh, which is still the main message that Russian trolls use on social media. Between that and, and the Cambridge Analytica work, that's how Donald Trump took the White House. And Ted Cruz got the Senate in 2018. Now, Tom, you have a history of working in advertising. So, and um, you you've actually worked in print media mostly back in the old days when that's all you had of doing these variations. So, do you understand in the era that we're in now with these forty thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand variations? Is there a human being creating this many or is it artificial intelligence or how, how is it done? It's done through AI and uh, yeah, artificial intelligence and just very sophisticated programs that, that create these things. But yeah, back in the day, back in the 70s, uh, I was a partner in an ad agency. And in the 90s, I owned an ad agency or my wife and I did. You know, in the 90s, we, we used to drop a couple million pieces of mail every every year. And uh, actually probably closer to, uh, well, much higher number than that. I had to go back and look. And we would send out four or five versions of a flyer. We were doing seminars, training businesses how to do their own in-house newsletters, how to do communications and marketing and employee communications. And so we'd try different headlines and we'd try different copy and, and see what worked. And you just, you know, kind of do that. But we did it all in the open. Everybody got the emails. They hung around. You could see what it was. They were not filled with lies. And it was all above board. And that's been kind of the norm for the advertising industry up until the last 20 years or so. But what social media has done, particularly as a consequence of Section 230 of of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, what social media has done is, is basically throw away those rules. And so now it's just a wild, wild west. And the ability to use machines, to use computers to, to do in one day what we would have done in two years back in the 90s. It's, it's sort of like, in fact, the analogy I think I use in the book is that if you're in pain, you can get a little bit of an opiate, you know, or even some opium. Or I, t- I talked about how I was down in Peru once and I chewed some coca leaf, you know, with some uh, Peruvian shaman. And for me, it was like a cup of coffee. In fact, it wasn't even as strong as a cup of coffee. 
But if you take that same cocaine and you purify it, it, it becomes something that can burst your heart. If you take that same opium and you purify it into heroin, it becomes something that can destroy your life. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now. Uh, we're seeing this purification process, this amplification, this progressive fine-tuning and strengthening of normal human communications. And it's being turned into a drug, essentially, into something toxic. And it's being used in ways that are toxic and destructive. And it needs to be regulated. Elsewhere in the book, you do take it to the natural human attraction to novelty and how that actually has elements of an addiction to it, especially mm -hmm. in terms of you need to up the dosage each time you get acclimatized to whatever the drug is. Talk about how that has led to greater and greater extreme sites and material. This was a phenomena that was well known to addiction researchers for years. And as porn became easier and easier to get on the Internet, became a subject of study. And what they found was that people would get inured to average garden variety porn. And so they would start looking for more and more extreme versions of it to get that same rush, the same sexual hit. And similarly, social media, which binds to outrage. I mean, this is the, the principal algorithm that you find with most social media is if there's outrage, if there's emotion, then that's what gets promoted, not rather than facts or details or academic stuff. And so it takes more and more outrage to get people outraged enough to go out and vote or say something or donate money or do something or even oppose something. And this has led to a radical coarsening of our political discourse and our politics in general, but also in our media. It takes more and more of a, a, a larger and larger hit to produce that attention. There's also some fascinating work that's been done about how we're all become an ADD society, basically, or ADHD, that, that the more time people spend on screens, the more time they spend watching, reading things on the internet or on their phone, the shorter their attention span grows over time. And that's a measurable phenomena that a number of people have written about that's very troubling. And this leads us to the whole behavior modification element of it. You point out that entities like Facebook, and I know this is not only Facebook, I want to be clear about that, but they can actually predict behavior and then funnel information to change behavior. Expand on that, please. Yeah, just, just in the way that you type into your computer when you're on Facebook or any of these media sites, you're actually connected right to their server. And they you're, you're typing slowly every single keystroke they're measuring it or you're, if you're typing rapidly. And based on that, on how you're typing or on your app usage or on your on who you call, they claim to be able, Facebook claims to be able to accurately predict your ethnicity with 95% accuracy, your gender 93%, your sexual orientation 88%, political views 85%, your religion 82%, your nicotine usage 73%, whether you're in a relationship and what kind it is 67%, drug usage 65%. Whether your parents were divorced, they can predict that with a 60% accuracy. They also can recognize what emotional state you happen to be in, whether you are expressing confidence or hesitance or nervousness or relaxation or sadness or tiredness. 
and they can predict your core personality, your character traits, whether you're emotionally stable, whether you're extroverted, whether you're introverted, whether you're open to new experiences, whether you're conscientious, or whether you're generally an agreeable person with well over 70% accuracy, just by the simple little fragments of data that they gather based on how you interact with the internet. It's, it's truly breathtaking. Well, in your section, Big Brother Goes Commercial, you talk about how they gather all these data points and they sell them to other corporations primarily. And just as an example, there is a safe rent score. Talk about that. Yeah. These companies, many of them claim to have well over not more than 2,000 data points on you. They Some of them claim to have fifteen or 20,000 data points on every American. And they'll sell their services to uh, landlords. Do you want to rent to this person or not? They'll sell their services to retail stores. Do you want to give this person a store credit card? Do you want to allow them to return goods? Do you want to answer their call when they call within the first three rings or let them sit on hold for an hour? Are they potentially a good customer or a bad customer? Have they browsed the web pages of your competitors recently? So they might be a bargain hunter, so you really don't want to take their call or you want to ignore them when they come into the store. There's just all this stuff that has to do with basically enhancing the profitability of mostly retail businesses, cell phone companies, airlines. I mean, how long you're going to sit on hold depends on these scores that these companies come up on and whether a landlord is going to rent to you or an apartment building is going to rent to you, whether an employer is going to hire you, whether a company is going to offer you services or not. It's all, well, it's not all, but in many cases, this is determined by these scores that are the result of this very intrusive data collection. Well, I suppose the most extreme example is now in China with the social credit score. Talk about that, please. Yeah, the social credit score in China is pretty shocking. They put together a system where we all know what a credit score is, you know, whether your bank is going to give you credit based on how you've been behaving, you know, have you been paying your bills and did you just bounce a check and that kind of thing. Well, in China, it goes way beyond that. If you are playing loud music in public, your your social credit score goes down. If you, if you are hanging out with the wrong people, your social credit score goes down. If you look at websites that the government doesn't like, that your social credit scores can go down if you drive too fast. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that are considered antisocial behavior that reduce your social credit score. And this is consequential because your social credit score is used to determine what part of town you can live in who you can date if you're trying to date through a dating service, which is now very, very popular in China, whether a landlord will rent to you, whether you can get a job or not, whether you can get certain discounts, uh, how quickly you see a doctor or whether or not you're admitted to the good hospitals as opposed to the, the sleazy hospitals and how rapidly. All these things are functions of your social credit score. And if your social credit score is really in the tank, Pretty much the only way you can raise it is by social obligation kind of things like giving blood or volunteering for clean up the roadsides and things. It can take two to five years. And the other way that you can do this over that two to five year period is by fulsomely praising the government on social media and proving that you're a good citizen. And this is what we have to be very wary of here. Very briefly, let's talk about something that happened in 2017, the creation of Clearview AI. It combined facial recognition software like uh, Facebook photos, etc., with 
20,000 data points, and it's available to basically anyone who pays for it. What can happen with this Clearview AI, which I might add is being used by 3,000 law enforcement agencies, both in the United States and foreign? Yeah, this was a company that came out of a 2017 meeting with uh, three Trump supporters, (laughs) very wealthy people. And the idea was let's scrape billions of pictures off of Facebook without their knowledge. Facebook has since made that very difficult to do, but they pulled it off. And they combined it with a fancy new facial recognition algorithm that one of them had. And initially, and there was an article about this in the New York Times last year about how the company had made this app available to some of their investors. And there was this one particular billionaire who was in a restaurant uh, having dinner with his wife and his daughter came into the restaurant, not knowing that her father was in there having dinner with a new uh, date. And so dad took the picture of the kid, plugged it into into the Clearview app, and within seconds knew everything about this kid, uh, all the way back to his birth, and walked over and said hi and started telling the kid and his daughter all about the kid, and, you know, which totally creeped him out. But can you imagine, you know, walking into a to a bar or a restaurant, uh, if you're traveling and you, you're alone, you sit down at a table or a, a bar and, and somebody comes up and sits down next to you and says, oh, I see you went to college at Michigan State back in, you know, the, whatever the year was. And, and I see and I you used to date this person, uh, Christine, what's her name, didn't you? Or, you know, John, what's his name? They just literally know everything about you. It, it's beyond creepy. And like you said, it's being used by over 3,000 law enforcement agencies now. Microsoft also rolled out a product in that category just last year. It's called Azure. And then there's a Russian one called NTech Lab that they rolled out a product called FindFace in 2016. And I think it was the article in the New York Times noted that within months of the time that they released that app to the general public in Russia – People were using it. They were just scanning everybody who walked by, and they were identifying sex workers and porn stars and protesters and basically being used to harass people. So it's uh, it's a brave new world, Joy. Oh, yeah. Well, let's move on to Big Brother and the real global info wars. Talk about the Stuxnet attack by the U.S. and Israel in 2010 against Iran's nuclear enrichment. In 2010, there was a concern that Iran was purifying uranium with the idea to build a nuclear bomb. And so the U.S. and and Israel injected into the Iranian computer system a a virus, it was called the Stuxnet, or worm, that caused the centrifuges to run super fast and, and basically shatter themselves, destroy themselves. Iran at that time had about a $70 million, if I'm remembering correctly, budget for their security for their internet security. The next year, they raised that to over a billion dollars and hired, as I recall, over 100,000 people and became the fourth largest cyber army essentially in the world. And they then started using that as an offensive weapon. Sheldon Adelson, the billionaire, Las Vegas billionaire who owned the Sands Hotel, who was very, very close friends with Netanyahu and a big supporter of Donald Trump, a major donor to the Republican Party, gave a speech in which he basically said, if Iran wants to misbehave, we'll just drop a nuke and, and shake him up. And a couple of weeks later, every computer in the Sands Hotel was bricked. Uh, the hard drives were completely destroyed. And on the screen was a picture of, as I recall, Netanyahu and, and Adelson with a slogan that said something like, don't let your tongue cut your mouth. 
And then they came after uh, America more generally. There, there's a dam here in Oregon, uh, just up river from a town called Prineville, as I recall, the Bowman Dam. And if that dam was opened rapidly, it would drown thousands of people. I mean, it would basically wash the city away. And so the Iranians thought they would do this as a, as a way of thumbing their nose at us when we were being unkind to them in their minds. The fortunate outcome of the story was that the dam that they attacked was the Bowman Dam in New York State rather than Oregon. And that particular dam was just on a small creek and the sluice gate was up for maintenance. So they couldn't do any damage. But the Russians then took the same technology or a variation on it, and used it to bring Ukraine to its knees back around the time of the Maidan Revolution, uh, you know, when they kicked out Paul Manafort's client, uh, Yanukovych. And then, of course, Manafort went on to run Trump's campaign. Yanukovych was uh, Putin's stooge in Ukraine at the time. And they bricked thousands of computers, they had 10% of the computers in the country, and shut down banks and shut down gas stations and shut down ATMs and they just basically and, and shut down nuclear power plants. I mean, shut down the power grid, browned out 230,000 people, if I'm remembering my numbers right. It was a, a major cyber attack. And therefore, there's, you know, a lot of people assuming that the next war won't necessarily be a nuclear war. It'll be a cyber war. Well, yes, that was in 2015. So Obama is seeing all this going on. He makes an effort to create a White House cybersecurity coordinator. He actually does that. He tries to get something in through Congress. They don't let him do that. So he does these executive orders trying to strengthen our cyber defense. Trump comes in eliminates the Office of Cybersecurity. And here we are now in 2022. In the meanwhile, there are articles appearing about what Ukraine has been doing since 2015 to up their cyber defenses. Because I had been wondering, given the power that the Soviet uh, hackers have, why hasn't there been more happening in Ukraine in cyber warfare? And apparently they have gotten in Ukraine some very effective defenses. I wonder what your take on that is, Tom. Yeah, they did. They had that horrible experience the first time, and they basically said never again, and they got their act together. And we've been assisting them with that. There's a piece in The New York Times, I think it is uh, right now, it came up in the last day or so, about how the U.S. Uh, cyber security was also helping block Russian attempts to, to uh, bring down Ukraine. But you're absolutely right about what happened with Obama. He tried to get a cyber agency into law, and it passed the House of Representatives, but it was filibustered by Republicans in the Senate. And in the goal and the reason the Republicans filibustered it was because it would have required American companies, private for-profit companies that operate critical infrastructure like power systems or nuclear power plants or dams. They would require those companies to harden their cybersecurity so that they didn't suffer the same fate as Shelley Adelson or the Bowman Dam. And the Republicans said, this is uh, going to be too costly to industry. And besides that, it's government overreach. And so uh, we're going to filibuster this. And that got killed. And so Obama then created this Office of uh, Cybersecurity within the White House 
hired a guy by the name of Daniels to run it. And they had a staff of about 20 that worked out of the Eisenhower office building next door to the White House. And when Trump came in, he fired them all closed down the office. And within a year, the Russians were inside the Department of Commerce and the Department of Treasury. And God only knows what else they did, because they were roaming free for several years inside the computers of, of our federal government and may well still be. Yeah, we have no way of knowing, I guess. Tom, I want to move to some of the things you've written on Tom Hartman report, and particularly As the fourth great turning unwinds, Ukraine has become the George Floyd of the world. Would you explain your thesis in that essay? It's kind of combining two memes or themes, as it were. One is that had that very brave 17-year-old girl not filmed the murder of George Floyd, we would not know his name and his family wouldn't even know how he died because the police report, which was accepted by the police department that day, was that he resisted arrest, he was drug-addled, and he had a fit and died from probably a drug overdose, and no big deal. And it wasn't until that video came out that, that the world went, what? And the world went, what? And similarly, we've had a number of wars, you know, our uh, illegal uh, invasion of Iraq, or, uh, Afghanistan, there have been other wars around the world in the last few years that have not hit countries that were sufficiently middle class and wealthy and and you know in the neighborhood where George Floyd got murdered uh, was not an affluent neighborhood but it did there is enough money in America that even low income people have cell phones you know with cameras in them and that's very much the case in Ukraine now so this is our first TikTok war our first Facebook war it's the first war that has been televised by average people And I don't think that Vladimir Putin had that in his equation at all. He used to be a Stasi leader, KGB guy back in East Germany back in the day. And I really think he he and his advisors uh, did not see this coming, did not realize that it was going to play out this way. So there's that. And that's why they're I think they're having so much trouble and why the whole world is standing up going, wait a minute. I mean, we had the bombing of the maternity hospital today and there's all the footage, right? It's all right there. And so you've got that. And then and then I was combining that with the idea that roughly every 80 years, Arnold Toynbee once said, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. And that's about 80 years. I mean, that's, you know, four generations. And Strauss and Howe back in the 90s published a book called The Fourth Turning in which they laid out these 80-year cycles of history. About every 80 years, we have an economic crash followed by a war, followed by uh, essentially a renewal. And the first was the, the crash of 1700, 1770 that led to the American Revolution and the renewal of democracy or the creation of democracy. The second was the, the, the great economic crash of 1856 that led to the Civil War that led to a renewal of American democracy and the enfranchisement of, of eventually of African-Americans and women. The third was in 1929-30, in that era, the Great Crash, the Repu- what was referred to up until the 1950s as the Republican Great Depression, followed by World War II. And I think that we are, we're now 80 years out from that, and the world is sitting atop debt like it has literally never, ever seen. We have inequality, levels of inequality that we haven't seen since the 1930s. And uh, the economic system of the world is very, very fragile and there are the drums of war. And so I just wanted to put it in that context that, yes, these things happen and they seem to happen every 80 years. 
and they're terrible things, and a lot of people are really badly damaged and suffered, but they also typically are birth pains. If we make it through, then there's a better world on the other side. And I think that Putin has awakened the world to, I mean, we were starting to take Russia very casually. And the idea of authoritarian governance, which has been embraced by the Republican Party so aggressively, we were starting to take that as just normal. And I don't think that after this, that's going to be normal any longer. I want to thank you for your program yesterday in which you brought up the Budapest Memorandum. And I hope you'll indulge me in a short little rant. Sure. On March 2nd, 2022, the U.S. Senate unanimously passed, quote, a resolution steadfastly, staunchly, proudly and fervently in support of Ukraine, end of the quote. The House would have been unanimous as well. But for the votes of Montana's lone representative, Matt Rosendale, Arizona Republican Paul Gosar, and Kentucky's Thomas Massey. Rosendale has proposed banning aid to Ukraine until the U.S.-Mexico border is secured. Rosendale has also stated that the, quote, U.S. has no legal or moral obligation to come to the aid of either side, end of the quote. In this, he is entirely mistaken, because after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Ukraine was the third largest holder of nuclear weapons in the world. In 1994, the U.S., along with Great Britain and Russia, signed the Budapest Memorandum, agreeing to guarantee Ukraine's existing borders, independence, and sovereignty and that no economic force or military threats would be used against her in exchange for nuclear disarmament. And so Ukraine completely disarmed all of its nuclear weapons with that assurance. Now, as one of those signatories, Russia invades and daily commits crimes against humanity there, the U.S. and U.K. offer hollow economic sanctions in Ukraine's defense lest Putin's threat of the use of nuclear weapons happens. But whether or not a robber actually discharges a weapon in the commission of a robbery, the threat or brandishing of the weapon is in fact the use of the weapon in the commitment of the crime and is recognized as such in the law. Thus, Putin's threat of the first use of nuclear weapons should other nations intervene in his invasion of Ukraine, is the use of nuclear weapons and adds to the list of his crimes against humanity. Thus, Ukraine's non-NATO member status is not a sufficient excuse for lack of promised protection against the violation of the Budapest Memorandum by Vladimir Putin's Russian's armed forces end of my rant. You are free to respond, should you wish. <laughs> I, I love it. I agree with everything you said, although I would note that it's the second use of nuclear weapons. We used nuclear weapons against Japan in 1945. Yeah, I just meant in terms of the battle theory of first use versus waiting to respond. But yes, right. your point is well taken. But that's just, I'm just picking this. I mean, that, no, that no, really, you're absolutely, actually, <laughs> it's the third use because Hiroshima, then Nagasaki. And right. so anyway, 
We are really running out of time now, Tom Hartman. I really want to congratulate you. You brought up something that I hadn't heard before. You refused to call the rants on the extreme parts of the Internet. You don't call them conspiracy theories. You call them conspiracy fantasies. And I think that is so useful. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Do you want to say something very briefly about what you also call the disinformation industry? I hadn't thought of it that way before. I would say that there are people in particular, I mean, you know, like the Paul Manaforts of the world who use the tools or the weapons of things like social media and traditional channels of communication as well to malinform Americans. I would, I would argue that Fox News is part of this disinformation ecosystem, for example. And they do it for profit more often than not. Occasionally they do it for ideology and occasionally it's for both. But it's not a healthy thing. It's not a sign of a healthy society. And, and again, it's something that needs to be regulated. Thank you again for joining us on Forthright Radio, Tom Hartman. Your latest book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. There's so much more in there that we couldn't get to. But thank you so much for the work that you've done for so long. And I really appreciate your joining us today on Forthright Radio. Well, thank you, Joy. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. You just heard an interview with author-journalist Tom Hartman discussing his latest book in the Hidden History series, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy, which was just published by Barrett Kohler. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media, and you'll also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.